Is there any place that's more fun to be than a Trump rally? Is there any place? You know, they all said, Mr. President, we loved the tone of your State of the Union speech. Some people said it was a great speech. Some people said, really a great speech. I said, but if I ever did that in El Paso, Texas, uh, it wouldn't work here too well. Do you agree? Nice and calm. No, that's not what you're looking for. And this is more fun. That's you trying to disguise yourself as a worker bee. That's you trying to blend in with hive. But you're not a worker bee. You're a renegade killer bee. Killer bee. Killer bee. Viceberg Slim. Welcome to In Broad Daylight, a solo podcast with your host, Adam Todd Brown. Hey, everybody. Welcome to In Broad Daylight. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. I'm your only host, no co-hosts. This is my solo podcast. And as you may have gathered from the opening clip, that wasn't me talking. That was President Donald Trump talking. Some people have a problem calling him president. I'm one of those people. But for the sake of accuracy, we'll call him President Trump. That clip you heard comes from his rally in El Paso that happened a week ago today on the day this goes up, which is Monday, February something. I think 18th, something like that. That feels right. But Trump had a rally in El Paso on February 11th in the midst of negotiations over border security. So obviously, El Paso is the place to do it because it's on the border and they have a wall, a wall that, depending on who you ask, had very little impact on their crime rate or it was the wall that changed everything. Things were one way. Before that wall, things were a completely different way. After that wall, that's a reference to Heart Shape Pod, a Nirvana fan podcast that I co-host with Travis Clark and Andy Sell. Maybe check it out sometime. What are we talking about today? I just told you. We're talking about Trump's rally in El Paso. These are a thing that people on the left, the media, tend to mock these rallies. And I get that. Still campaigning years after you won the election. Just sort of reeks of desperation. And then you add in the fact that our president is an Adderall-snorting maniac. And those pronunciations during those rallies start to get really dicey around the 45-minute mark. And uh, if I'm being honest, that's actually kind of commendable. I can't get through a 10-minute comedy set without a gallon of water next to me if I take even one Adderall in the morning. This motherfucker is taking so much Adderall, he is the color of Adderall now. And he can throw down for 45 minutes to an hour before his tongue starts sticking to the roof of his mouth. 
which I think is happening to my tongue and my mouth right now. But let's power on. All jokes aside, these rallies actually play a really important role in what Trump is trying to do right now. And we should be taking them a little more seriously. I mean, I'm not here to fucking browbeat you. Oh, why aren't you worrying about this? I know there's so much to worry about in the world right now. But still, I think the danger these rallies present is a little understated sometimes. Sure, there's reason to mock them, but there's also reason to really closely monitor what is said at these rallies and maybe see if it provides a little bit of a roadmap to what Trump is planning in the future. I would argue his rally in El Paso absolutely did, and we'll get to that in a minute. If you want to read a really interesting article about these rallies and the psychology behind them, there's an article on NBC.com by Derek Newton. He worked as a political consultant and speechwriter for numerous campaigns and was formerly a vice president at the Century Foundation, a progressive think tank. The article is called Trump's Core Supporters Won't Reject Him. It Would Mean Rejecting Their Own Values. And this article talks about how Trump hasn't really delivered on a lot of the promises he made during the campaign. And the one that comes up the most these days, obviously, is Mexico is going to pay for the wall, which I still think they might, just in a roundabout way. But that's for another episode. This is a quote from the article. The back of the Trump base is not likely to break anytime soon because Trump supporters aren't beholden to politics or logic. Instead, they are creatures of a group psychology dynamic more commonly seen in religious and fraternal organizations. I should have taken a breath earlier in that quote because I really started running out of steam at the end. But it's fine. Let's move on. This article references a book called Doing Public Good. That It's a question in the title. Doing Public Good, Private Actors, Evaluation, and Public Value. And then in parentheses, Comparative Policy Evaluation Book 23 by Andrew Gray. It's $43 on Amazon, and that is for the Kindle version, which feels completely counterintuitive to what the ebook movement is supposed to be about, which is allowing me to get any book for the low, low price of $9.99 or less. But whatever, it's probably a textbook or something you have to read to learn how to do a job, a.k.a. a textbook. You get it. Shockingly, that is not the most expensive book that is referenced in this article, but we'll get to it. Anyway, this book, it talks about an authority structure called communion mode, where people's recognition of legitimate authority is based on an appeal to common values and creeds. This is a quote from Andrew Gray, who wrote the book. In this mode, the legitimacy for actions lies in consistency with the understandings, protocols, and guiding values of shared frames of reference. So you can probably already see where this is going, especially if you've listened to this podcast before. But we'll get there. Here's a quote from the article. Communion governance structures rely on regular in-person meetings, call and response rituals, and faith in shared values and experiences. Lock her up! So if you're wondering why Lock Her Up is still such a crowd favorite two years after Trump has already won the election, this could be one explanation for that. The type of 
thinking that is going on behind a person who would actually go to a Trump rally to support Donald Trump, because there's a lot of people there for a lot of reasons. But if you're enough of a Trump fan that you're actually going to rallies, you're probably getting something from those rallies that extends beyond just a chance to see Trump in person. And these rallies are a quick and easy way for Trump to deliver that thing that people are looking for to them. And when I say that, what I'm referring to is confirmation that your worldview isn't as incorrect as the rest of the world says it is. Because you have to put yourself in the shoes of a Trump supporter right now. Every news story, every podcast, every article, unless you are entrenched in a conservative bubble of nothing but right-leaning news sources, then you're probably kind of overwhelmed by all the people telling you that you are wrong about how you feel about the world and how you view the world. They're right. You are wrong. But that doesn't change the fact that at some point you're going to want to go out and get a little reinforcement that you're not alone in this fight. And that's what Trump rallies do. They give his base a place to go to hear other like-minded people say the same bigoted nonsense that they say behind closed doors and that the media demonizes them for because the enemy of the people is the American press. These rallies are also a great opportunity to spread that message because the press is going to be there. They're not only there, they are on a platform elevated above the crowd so Trump can constantly point them out and remind everyone in attendance that everything you hear from these people is fake unless it's Fox News, in which case they're the good guys. So these rallies play an important role in that way. And the article brings up another interesting point when it comes to religious organizations that employ a communion mode of leadership. The followers there tend to make contributions to the cause as a show of their values, as opposed to doing it in the hopes of bringing about a specific outcome. So if a Trump supporter attacks someone for being part of the press and being the enemy of the people, which absolutely happened at this rally also, it's not so much because they love Trump. They just love the words he says and the values they think he represents because they think those values are their values and they're, they, they like seeing them represented on the world stage. And that seems like a minor difference, but it's really not. It's actually a really scary difference because also, as mentioned in this article, it means the only feasible way to make inroads with Trump's base is for someone who's even more to the right and even more blatant in their racist beliefs to emerge and kind of convince that base that he has now that he believes these things even harder than Trump does and that Trump has betrayed them and doesn't really share the same beliefs that they do. I don't know who that person would be. Maybe Steve Bannon, someone like that. Who knows? It could be anyone. But What's extra scary about that is if that happened, it would just make Trump look all the more mainstream. And that's a horrifying thought. But this is the last quote that I'll read from this article. They recognize his legitimacy and follow him not because of who he is or what he does, but because of what they think he believes. 
and what they think that says about them. I mentioned there would be an even more expensive book referenced in this article. The stuff about religious organizations operating under a communion form of authority, that all comes from a book called The Palgrave Handbook of Global Philanthropy, which can be yours in ebook form for the low, low price of just $169. (laughs) $69. I'm starting to feel like the only thing keeping me from being a real journalist is a budget to spend on books that cost more than I spend on food in a week and a support staff to give me the free time to read them. Beyond that, I'd be rocking the world stage right now. But if you've listened to all the episodes of this podcast, then you already know that there is another book out there that kind of puts forth these same ideas that are mentioned in these two wildly expensive books. And you can read that book for free. It's called The Authoritarians by Bob Altemeyer. And you can read it for free on theauthoritarians.org or uh, it's on Audible. Sign up for an Audible trial and get yourself a free book. That is a thing. If you sign up for a trial, you get one free book, so you don't even have to pay to listen to it. But you should read this book. It is interesting how these three different books all kind of come to the same sort of conclusion, which is that people who respond to this type of leader don't really care about the person that leader is or what they actually do. It just matters that they feel like he believes the same things they do. Anything beyond that, kind of unimportant. It's an ends justify the means kind of situation. But we've talked about that a little bit before. I've, I have I said the topic of this episode is the rally in El Paso, and God damn it, I mean it. Let's get back to that fucking thing. For one, I didn't love the coverage of this rally. It mostly focused on a few different things. Fact-checking Trump's claims about how many people showed up, which is, it's important to know how many people were there, but definitely not the most important thing that came up. The Trump supporter who pushed a BBC reporter, that's worth covering. Whatever he said about the border wall, that was covered a whole lot. And that he discussed whether or not he should buy a dog. I'm still seeing transcripts of that exchange trickling out on social media now. So by the time this goes up, that could be all anyone's talking about is that Trump contemplated whether he should buy a dog near the end of his El Paso rally. I did have pretty high hopes. I saw a CNN article written by Chris Saliza called The 50 Most Eye-Popping Lines from Donald Trump's El Paso Speech. 50 is a lot. Surely you can cover all of the important talking points that came up in the span of a 75-minute rally with 50 points. But no, not really. It does a decent job covering and fact-checking the first half of the speech. But the second half, where the speech starts to get really kind of weird and terrifying in parts, that CNN article just starts covering the bullshit, like his dog, and things that have already been fact-checked to death. The clip I played at the beginning happens around the 20-minute mark, and it's him kind of freestyling after taking a break to prowl around the stage because a protester was being dragged out of the building at the time. That is when he decided to ask if there's anything more fun than a Trump rally. And I would answer yes. Pretty much any public gathering where people aren't so angry that security has to drag them out 
is probably better than a Trump rally, if I had to guess. So uh, on this episode, as I already mentioned, that's what we're going to focus on here is some of the more into now, it's not all crazy. It's not all insane. It's not all scary. But I feel like there were a lot of moments in this rally that didn't get the proper attention. So we're going to talk about some of those and we'll listen to clips of Trump actually saying all these things. And the first thing he brings up is the right to try program. So let's listen to a clip. We eliminated the Obamacare individual mandate. And to give critically ill patients access to life-saving treatments, we did something that they haven't been able to do for a long time. We passed right to try, right to try. That's an incredible thing, right to try. You know, we have the greatest doctors and research in the world. And if somebody was terminally ill, they travel to Asia, they travel to Europe, they travel all over the world if they had the money. If they didn't have the money, they'd just go home. There was nothing they could do. And I said, wait a minute, we have drugs in the pipeline that are showing tremendous progress. If somebody is terminally ill, let's let them have access to our drugs. Let's let them have access. And it's much tougher than you would think, but we got it. And people, you will not understand, nobody understand the life-saving effects. It's incredible what's going on. They are getting better. People are getting better that were thinking they were going to die. It's right to try. I love it. I always wondered why we didn't do it before. All right. So that's him talking about right to try. And on the surface, it does sound like a really great thing that would benefit a lot of people. And the fact that the Trump administration passed it would be a thing that they should celebrate. And maybe you would think, well, maybe that's why CNN's not talking about it. They don't want to celebrate his wins. That's probably true. But this also isn't a fucking win. For starters, the FDA already has a program like this in place. And 99% of the people who apply for it are approved. Those who aren't approved for it, it's usually for safety reasons. Like the drug would probably kill them if they take it. So a very small percentage of the number of people who apply under our existing system, the people who apply for what Trump is suggesting are already approved. So it's not like there has been no access to this program at any point in history. And what he's kind of doing is... Imagine if someone went into an amusement park and removed all of the height restrictions from the roller coasters and just kind of left it up to the kids as to whether they want to try it out or not. That's sort of what he's doing here. And I know that might seem like an insensitive way to put it, but when you're sick, there's depending on how desperate it gets, your judgment might not always be the best when it comes to what you're willing to throw down your gullet to make yourself better. And if 99% of the time when people want these drugs and go through the FDA and ask for it, if they're getting it 99% of the time, I'm fine with that 1% that's not. I don't know what it is. I'm not a doctor. I don't make drugs. 
I mean, I make my own marijuana tinctures and things, but that's a totally different story. A 1% failure rate in something like that sounds reasonable to me. But what the Trump administration wants to do and what Right to Try does is it removes pretty much all regulations that relate to when a patient can try a drug for the first time. It makes it so that drug companies can give drugs to the public when they're still in phase one of clinical trials. And phase one just means the drug is safe enough to test. It doesn't mean it's safe enough to take. It doesn't mean they have any idea if there will be lasting side effects from taking it. It just means, sure, we'll consider it. But it definitely doesn't mean they're safe enough to be taken by the public yet. That is still to be determined. You know, could help. Could give you a side order of tuberculosis with your OCPD. Who knows? But there is a great article on TheAtlantic.com about this called The Disingenuousness of Right to Try by James Hamblin. He points out, for one thing, that several ethicists, doctors, and patients' rights advocates vehemently oppose this idea. He references a tweet from David Gorsky, who is a cancer surgeon and professor at Wayne State University. That tweet says, claiming phase one testing is enough to show that a drug is safe enough for right to try is utterly insane, as anyone who's ever had anything to do with clinical trials knows. So there's that. And then there's also a conspiracy theory that this is just a move by the Trump administration meant to kind of limit the powers and influence that the FDA has over the public. And that's the kind of thing that normally you would hear someone allege, but it's one of those, oh, well, I haven't seen any proof that that's what's happening. We actually have proof here. Senator Ron Johnson, who is the author of the Right to Try bill, wrote in an email to the FDA, and this is a quote, this law intends to diminish the FDA's power over people's lives, not increase it. So that is exactly what Right to Try is, at least as it's imagined and implemented under the Trump administration is just an end run around the FDA and all those pesky regulations that keep sick people from getting the drugs they need. But it's not really getting sick people the drugs they need. That program already existed. This one just bypasses the FDA and gives a little more money to corporations that make drugs. Welcome to the Trump movement. All right, let's talk about the second win that Trump brought up. Let's give it a listen. Another one they said could never get passed. They've been trying to do it for 40 years. We passed VA Choice, Veterans Choice. So that now, rather than waiting online for five days, for nine days, for three weeks, So I should cut in here because this clip is going to be a little long because what's happening right now in the middle of Trump talking about VA choice is a protester is being dragged out of the building. That happens a good four or five times during this speech. And I would like it noted that at this point in the video that I'm watching, which is the PBS NewsHour broadcast, of Trump's rally. You can go watch it on YouTube yourself if you want. Someone in the comments section said, have you noticed there have been no natural disasters while Trump has been in office? It's because he walks the path of God. 
God is pleased. This country has been a revolving door of wildfires and hurricanes since Trump took office. If I was ever going to buy into that old Christian conservative God is punishing us trope, it would be right now while Trump is our president. If we deserve punishment for anything, it's that. Meanwhile, the set that normally pushes that is all smiles because there haven't been any tsunamis in Iowa lately. So VA accountability and VA choice. Accountability. We couldn't fire anybody from the Veterans Administration. We couldn't fire anybody. They could treat our veterans badly. We had to take it. Now you get rid of them. And VA Choice, they'd wait online for days and weeks. They couldn't see a doctor. Now they go out, they have a choice. They get a private doctor. They have things taken care of. And we pay their bill. So let's talk about VA Choice and Trump's stance on it. For one thing, it's an Obama-era program. Trump just expanded it. So this was by no means Trump finally swooping in and taking care of veterans after no president before him would do it. This was a thing that was already in place. Two, it's been a fucking disaster for VA patients and also a financial windfall for a few different private companies. If you want to read a good article about it, check out the VA's private care program gave companies billions and vets longer waits on politifact.com by Isaac Arnsdorf and John Greenberg. This is a quote from the article. Since 2014, 1.9 million former service members have received private medical care through a program called Veterans Choice. It was supposed to give veterans away around long wait times in the VA, but their average waits using the Choice program were still longer than allowed by law, according to examinations by the VA Inspector General and the Government Accountability Office. The watchdogs also found widespread blunders, such as booking a veteran in Idaho with a doctor in New York and telling a Florida veteran to see a specialist in California. Once, the VA referred a veteran to the Choice Program to see a urologist, but instead he got an appointment with a neurologist. It's a really long article. There's a lot of technical and financial details about this program and how it hasn't at all delivered on what it promised and how it's actually costing taxpayers more money than what the VA was working with before. And that's not to say the VA wasn't a flawed system. I'm not a veteran, so I haven't had to maneuver within it. But I think we're all on the same page that the VA definitely is a system that needs to improve. We've all heard the horror stories, but this system did not improve it. And it was not Trump's idea. It was an Obama idea. And I feel like these two things, right to try and VA choice, would, if nothing else, be a an interesting extra thing to criticize Trump about. But it's more a, a discussion that doesn't really come up because he's talking about buying a dog. And I don't know. Like, I, I don't I know these aren't issues that are important enough that they're going to sway the election, although the the veterans thing does sort of tie into all of this because Trump campaigned as this person who was going to look out for veterans. And a lot of veterans groups actually oppose VA choice. So he was kind of going against their interest when he expanded this program. But he was working in the interest of private business and the private sector. So you tell me 
where his loyalties lie, Trump supporters. Just joking. I know you're not listening to this. Let's listen to another clip. This weekend, some Democrats even proposed a measure that would force the release of thousands of criminal illegal aliens, including dangerous felons convicted of rape, sex trafficking, violent assault, and even murder into our country. Can you believe this? Their proposal would put a hard cap on the number of illegal aliens that are brave ICE officers. We love our ICE officers. Can detain and thus remove, forcing thousands of criminals to be set free into United States communities. I don't think so, okay? I don't think so. So what the fuck is he talking about? You might be wondering right now. Sounds important. I know because it is important. Basically, the White House, this is all part of the deal that kept the government from getting shut down for now. The White House has asked for $4.2 billion for ICE to increase its capacity to detain immigrants to 52,000 up from 40,000, which is the number currently funded by Congress. Right now, there are 49,057 immigrants in ICE detention as of February 6th. That is, you'll note, way more than the 40,000 authorized by Congress. So Republicans on that side, they want more money and they want that cap increased. Democrats want to cap the detention space ICE can use to hold immigrants in the interior of the country, away from the border, at 16500 which honestly sounds like the kind of thing middle America would totally get behind if only rural areas weren't so dependent on private prison money. Anyway, again, that cap by Democrats just refers to those being held in the interior of the country, which is around 20800 So the cap they want is 16500 There's 20,800 right now. So they're asking for the release of around 4,000 people, which honestly is not that much. But it's a lot if every single one of them is a rapist or a murderer, but they're not. In 2018, ICE held immigrants in detention who, as a group, were convicted of 54,630 charges. Only 1,641 were held on homicide charges. The most frequent charges were DUI, drug offenses, traffic offenses, and immigration offenses, and that is all according to ICE. So this isn't releasing violent offenders. There will still be space for them in the facilities they're currently in, and there will be way more room for fun activities like electrocuting their genitals and threatening them with dogs and stuff. It could be Guantanamo all over again, but even if... Even if all 4,000 of these people that Democrats want to release into communities, one, they're not rapists and murderers. These are people with minor offenses. In some cases, the offense just being crossing the border to get to the country. Even if all 4,000 of them were released into the community at once and all went to the exact same place, you would have to live in the smallest of fucking towns to even notice that 4,000 new people showed up. If 4,000 people showed up in L.A. today, 
it would just be any other day in LA because I bet 4,000 people showed up. People move here all the fucking time. But we're not talking about tens of thousands of violent offenders that Democrats want to release into communities in middle America. It's not that at all. Basically, Democrats want to return to the Obama-era policy, which was focused on deporting people who posed an actual threat to national security or the security and safety of Americans. That does not mean deport all illegal immigrants. And to imply that all illegal immigrants are rapists and murderers who bring drugs and crime and misery to this country, that's racist as fuck. And if you don't realize that, you're the worst kind of racist because there's probably no fixing you. But what we've done under Trump is basically criminalized entering the country at all. You cross the border to seek asylum. You're arrested for illegally crossing the border. And what that means is once you apply for asylum, you're ineligible for asylum because you've been arrested. And I think that sets up one of the especially creepy things Trump says near the end of this. But in the meantime, let's play another clip. Law enforcement, we love them. They keep us safe. In the last two years alone, ICE officers have made 200, listen to these numbers, 266,000 arrests of criminal aliens, including those charged or convicted of approximately 100,000 assaults, 40,000, 40, 40,000 larcenies, 30,000 sex crimes, 25,000 burglaries, 12,000 vehicle thefts, 11,000 robberies, 4,000 kidnappings, and 4,000 murders, 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 killings, murders. Murders, 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 killings, murders. Get your murders here, murders! He said this before. These statistics he just rattled off. Most prominently, he said it during his primetime address in January. ABCnewsgo.com has a article called Fact Check. Trump's claims on undocumented immigrant crime rates. Here's what the numbers show by Cheyenne Hazlitt. The most glaring issue with what Trump is claiming here, there is no national database that compares crimes according to immigration status. So no one is completely sure where these numbers are coming from. The ABC article suggests that it's maybe coming from the same ICE statistics I just mentioned. This is a quote. Though the White House did not specify, the president is likely gleaning numbers from data released by Immigration and Customs Enforcement that summarizes arrests of immigrants who are released into their custody and then removed from the country. But the information Trump appears to be using does not make clear what year the arrests were made, when the crimes were actually committed, and combines charges with convictions. So if ICE is saying that 4,000 people convicted of murder were released into their custody, that does not mean illegal immigrants committed 4,000 murders over the course of the last two years. You don't commit murder and then immediately get deported. You still serve time for that murder, and murder tends to come with a pretty lengthy sentence. So these are crimes that would have happened over any number of years. We could be talking about a 20-year span or more here. 
They could have happened in the 70s when serial killers were still new and hot and we didn't mind their shenanigans as much. Who knows? We don't know. What we do know, in the name of making a comparison, there were more than 16,000 murders in the United States in 2017 alone. Even if illegal immigrants did commit 4,000 murders all in that one year, there are still definitely other things flooding our country right now that would make a way bigger dent in crime numbers if we crack down on them just a little bit. And of course, I'm referring to white people. Ah! Just joking. I'm talking about guns, which uh, coincidentally enough, the CDC is still somehow not allowed to do. Speaking of statistics and things that need to be fixed, but that is a talk for another day. This is Trump fudging the numbers to rile up his base. There is no other way to put that. And if we end up in an argument online and you cite these numbers at me, just know that I know where they came from and I know what they really are. And trying to use this rundown of statistics to convince your base that there is an emergency that needs to be addressed or everyone's safety is at risk, it's just disingenuous as fuck it's dirty and it's pretty fucking racist here's another clip if we cut detention space we are cutting loose dangerous criminals into our country slashing ice detention is the first step of many for the far left i call them the radical left we will never abolish ice they want to abolish ice we're never going to abolish ice So let me state very clearly to those pushing this ridiculous and radical agenda, I will never sign a bill that forces the mass release of violent criminals into our country. And he didn't. Democrats dropped this demand in the border wall deal, which isn't a border wall deal by any stretch of the imagination, but the deal that kept the most recent possible government shutdown from happening, which is the one that would have happened on the 15th. In that deal, one of the sticking points was the ice bed space thing, and Democrats dropped it. And I find that a little disappointing, especially coming from the abolish ice set, and especially when the talking point after Trump did finally start talking about agreeing to a deal was that Trump caved and Everyone was up in arms about how Trump said the wall was going to get paid for this way, but he caved. Fucking, I guarantee you that's not helping the discourse right now. And it's especially not helping if Democrats are caving also on the part where we already have people in detention centers in the middle of America over immigration. And I don't know. I guess the government shutdown makes it a little more difficult, but I feel like that's a well we're just going to keep going back to every time. Every time Trump wants something a little more in the way of kicking immigrants out of this country, it's going to be a government shutdown, and then Democrats will say they don't want to back down, and Wolf Blitzer will be like, don't you care about Americans who will be out of jobs if the government shuts down? And round and round we'll go until... I don't know. People finally admit this feels like Nazi shit. Who knows? But rest easy, Trump supporters. He did not back down on that. 
Here comes another clip. You look at the car companies, they're moving back. They're going into Michigan. They're going into Pennsylvania. They're going back to Ohio. So many companies are coming back. And by the way, that's why I want people to come in to our country. But they have to come in legally and they have to come in through merit, through merit, so they can help us build our country. Make America great again. Pretty soon, we're going to be seeing keep America great. Keep America great. Shut up, idiot. He's, he's obviously talking about merit-based immigration there. If you want a really fun snapshot of your worth as a person to countries that offer merit-based immigration, there's an article on QZ.com by Annalisa Morelli, Lola Fadula, and Yo-Yo Zhao. And it's called Merit-Based Immigration, Where Could You Move? And what it actually is, is a calculator where you plug in all of your details and it runs those details through the criteria of the various countries of the world that use a merit-based immigration system. I checked for myself. I am not eligible to move to any of these countries. And these are all the, the countries like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Korea, uh, those places are like top of the list when Americans are thinking of places to move to, and not a single one will have me. Also, neither would the United States. Under the merit-based policy that Trump wants to enact, I would not be able to move to the United States because I am not worthy. And here's the thing. I'm dope. So just think of all the other people who would be left out of a chance to make a life in America if merit-based immigration becomes the law of the land. So if I do decide to flee the country at some point, I'm going to have to go somewhere that is less beholden to the interests of the United States. Oh, no! How terrible would that be? But this is a pretty good indicator of what merit-based immigration would look like. It's almost no immigration. And that's ultimately what Trump wants. Hey, let's listen to another really sad clip. And the fact is, illegal immigration is a heartbreaking human tragedy. One in three women is sexually assaulted on the very long and dangerous journey north up to our country. Sex traffickers, these are the worst human beings on earth, exploit our porous border to sell young girls and women into modern-day slavery. So what he said about one in three women being sexually assaulted while migrating to the United States, that's actually sort of true. He's taking some things out of context, and the numbers he's referring to come from one Doctors Without Borders study of 400 people back in 2015. But within that group, yes, it was one in three. But I think him calling this out still needs to be brought up because for people who are opposed to the Trump administration's immigration policies, you shouldn't be uncomfortable bringing this up because this isn't Trump feeling heartsick over human rights abuses. This isn't him worrying about the plight of migrants. This is just a fucking tactic that countries that crack down on immigrants always use. In Australia, it's people drowning when they try to arrive in Australia by boat because some people drown when they make that journey 
Now everyone has to live in a prison island. With us and with Trump right now, it's, oh, one in three women are sexually abused when migrating to the United States. And on the surface, that sounds like compassion, but it's really just another way to demonize migrants and the idea of people migrating to the United States, but passing it off as sympathy. Keep in mind, this is the same administration that filed federal charges against aid workers with the organization No More Deaths, who left bottled water and canned beans in the desert for migrants who might otherwise die of heat exposure and thirst, starvation, any number of things. They were tried for misdemeanor offenses of entering a refuge without a permit, abandoning personal property, and driving in a restricted area. They now face a large fine and possibly up to a year in jail. So that's how much Trump really cares about the well-being of people migrating to the United States. If you leave them beans and water, you will be prosecuted. And the area where these aid workers were arrested, where they left the, the beans and the water, more than 2,100 migrants have died in that exact area over the past two decades or so. But please tell me more about how any part of this is fueled by compassion for the plight of migrants. We as a country have always refused to prosecute cases like the aid workers, but no more. Meanwhile, we dropped federal charges against a Border Patrol agent who fired across the border and killed a Mexican teen. So again, this isn't Trump expressing his genuine concern for the safety and well-being of migrants. This is just another low-key way to demonize people who immigrate to the United States through Mexico while selling it as something along the lines of caring. And if you don't believe that's what he's doing, check out this next clip. And by the way, do you think they come in through the ports of entry? I listen to the Democrats. Let me be nice. Just say the Democrats. I won't be specific. And they say, oh, everything comes through the port. They don't do that. They drive out where there's no barrier, no wall. They make a left. Congratulations, you're in the United States. That's all. If you have three women tied up in the backseat of a car, you're not going through, folks, a port of entry where they do look in the backseat, at least, right? What? How about that shift in tone? He went from one in three women are sexually assaulted while migrating to the United States. And by the end of it, it became illegal immigrants are kidnapping women and bringing them to the United States to rape them? What the fuck? I mean, don't get me wrong. The United States seems like a great country to get away with rape in, if recent news is any indication. But this is an absurd scenario. The idea that sex traffickers are what? Picking up women who are migrating and then driving them all the way across the border to rape? Like, you could... Why would you, why is all the travel needed? Why would you need to come to the United States to make that an extra crime? Like, this, this scenario is fucking absurd. But this is the kind of shit that he pushes at his rallies. And people fucking believe it. And then he goes from that right into drugs coming through the border and legal ports of entry. Which, that kind of 
shift in thinking is we normally we tend to make fun of Trump for that, especially at rallies like this, like he's just some meth addled freak show who's jumping from topic to topic. And he is. But also, that's not the important part of what he just said. The important part is they have women tied up in the back of their car and they drive through land borders to get them to the United States. What? What What are all these cross-border kidnappings that we should know so much about if they're that big of a deal? I feel like this was probably something that happened in the Sicario sequel, which I've never seen because it's just anti-immigration propaganda. But otherwise, I don't know where this fucking scenario is coming from, but that's that's where we are now. Illegal immigrants are kidnapping other illegal immigrants, driving them into the United States, and then raping them. I don't... What's happening? Let's listen to another clip. The number of illegal immigrants crossing our borders is so large that we've nowhere to hold them. We have to build. They want buildings. They want jails. They want these people. How about the word caravan? Caravan. I think that was one of mine, but it looked like a caravan. Well, you have thousands and thousands of people coming from Guatemala from Honduras and El Salvador, and they march up through Mexico. And by the way, if we didn't have walls in those areas, in some cases that we put up, in many cases where we reinforce, in many cases where our great military helped us with barbed wire, you would have people pouring in. They don't pour in. The problem is our laws are so bad that there's no way we can quickly remove them. Other countries say, get out of here. We have to bring them through a court system. We sign their names. They touch our land. We sign them up. We explain to them, please come back in six years for court. And only the dumbest people show back up. Nobody ever shows. Nobody comes back in. Like 2%, they go in to our country. The good news is we have great law enforcement and many of these people, we know where they are. And we're going to get them the hell out. But we have to change our laws. So right now, we have a backlog. You won't even believe this. Other countries don't do this. Somebody walks into our country, we bring them to court. We have now a legal, we need Perry Mason. We have a legal case. Nobody else does that. Other countries say, get out. Can't come in. You're not a citizen of whatever country. We bring them in. So listen to this. Right now, we have almost 900,000 cases. 900,000. How many judges are going to take care of? We're going to have to hire tens of thousands of judges to do that. 900,000 cases. How stupid is this? This was a system put in place by really dumb people or people that did not have the best interests of our country at heart. Hey, did you hear that? That was Trump saying he wants to deport 900,000 people. It started with him complaining about that there is a court system at all when it comes to people migrating to the United States or seeking asylum in the United States. And then he complains about how there's no quick way to get them out. And then did you hear the line? I'm going to play it again right now in case you didn't. Here it goes. The good news is we have great law enforcement and many 
of these people. We know where they are. And we're going to get them the hell out. We know where they are, and we're going to get them out. This is him referring to the backlog of 900,000 pending immigration and asylum cases in the United States. What's crazy to me here, I mentioned that CNN article earlier. The only part they pulled out of this exchange is that he referenced Perry Mason at one point, and they gave him the old what for, because that's an outdated reference. He just said he wants to deport 900,000 people. And these are people who are probably here just waiting on their asylum cases to be heard in the majority of those cases anyway. There is indeed a backlog of 900,000 cases. It was not helped at all by the government shutdown. And it would be one thing if Trump was just complaining about the backlog of cases and how long it takes to process those cases. Because if that was the case, then he's just sort of venting about an immigration system that he sees as broken. And no problem. Complain about that all you want. Let's talk about how to fix it. But when you add in, we know where they are and we're going to get them out. How else is a person to interpret that? What I keep saying about Trump, he is sometimes accidentally and sometimes on purpose, one of the most transparent presidents we've ever had. And those moments where in speeches like this, where he goes off script, which you know, we know where they are and we're going to get them out of here. I guarantee you that's not in the actual speech that Trump was handed and told to read. I feel like that was a freestyle moment. And it's in those freestyle moments where Trump sometimes lets out things that aren't supposed to be let out. And I don't know any other way to interpret this than Trump accidentally saying, yeah, we've talked about just deporting all 900,000 of these people before their cases can be heard. Why the fuck wouldn't we? If someone out there listening to this or who has seen his El Paso rally three fucking times like I did to research this, if you have another interpretation of him throwing, we know where they are and we're going to get them out in the middle of a passage about a backlog in immigration cases. If you have another theory on what he is proposing there, be it purposely or on accident, I am all fucking ears because I can't imagine how that means anything other than we've identified 900,000 people that we're going to deport. Eventually, we've talked about it. It's just not our publicly stated policy yet, but now it is, thanks to Trump. And for the record, that number he's quoting comes from a study by a Syracuse University group called Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, and it refers to the influx of people who started migrating here from Central America in 2009. These are, in large part, people here seeking asylum. They did all the things they're supposed to do as part of that process. And now Trump is saying, why do we need this court system? Why do we need to listen to these people's stories? Why do we need to hear their case? We have beautiful law enforcement. We know where these people are. We know, and we're going to get them out of here. And here's the thing. That's what terrifies me about DACA the most, is that everyone enrolled in DACA had to fill out a form of some sort that went to the government. So when Trump decides to pull the trigger on deporting Dreamers, which I feel like is going to happen, it will be our crystal knocked, basically. But 
I feel like it's going to happen at some point. When it does, we know exactly where they are. We have addresses. We have school records. We have so much information about that demographic. And same thing with the 900,000 people who are waiting to hear their court cases heard. We know where they are. And as Trump clearly said in El Paso, our plan as a government is to deport those 900,000 people. I have to imagine Dreamers would be next. So this is a fucking crisis. And I don't understand why that we know where they are and we're going to get them out. I don't know why that line isn't getting more attention because it is a truly terrifying moment from this rally because that is someone asking, well, I know people came here the right way and they followed the laws we have in place, but why do we have those laws and why do we need those people? Why can't we get rid of those laws and those people? Maybe some of them will die. A lot of them will probably die, but not our concern. So... It's a depressing ending to this podcast, but the ending it is, nonetheless, there is a lot more to this rally if you want to go out and watch the rest. There's maybe 30 minutes left after I after what I just covered now. It's a lot of him yelling about how America will never be a socialist country, which is something no one's calling for. Things of that nature. You know, you know the score. But the stuff I just covered, I feel like it's not getting enough attention, especially the part where Someone has put it in Trump's ears that there are 900,000 people out there that if the administration could only figure out a way to to get their way without having to go through Congress, those people would probably all be deported already. So keep your eyes peeled for what develops with that, I guess. And uh, in the meantime, that is our episode. Whose episode? Ours. Mine and yours, baby. What do we have to plug? It is Space Week on the Unpops Network this week after this podcast. This wasn't about space, but all the other podcasts that I, I host or co-host this week, they're all about space. How cute is that? Why is it Space Week? No particular reason. I mean, the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster happened in February, but that's no reason to launch a Space Week. It's kind of a reason to stop a Space Week, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so check out all those episodes. That'll be lots of fun. Saturday, February 23rd, Hollywood Hotel, 9 p.m., Unpop stand-up show. Alex Schmidt, Tom Goss, Tom Ryman, me, Quincy Johnson, Chet Wild, Hannah Michaels. More names to be announced soon. It's going to be a damn fine time. So uh, come out to that. And I think that is all. Let's get the fuck out of here. Goodbye, everybody. I love you.